0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Dear Katie, where survivors of sexual assault, rape and abuse share their stories from hurt to healing. I'm your host, Katie Kessner. And at age 18, I appeared on the cover of time magazine, speaking out nationally and publicly about my own survivorship. I was raped when I was just starting out college. And since then I've dedicated my entire career to helping survivors and sexual violence and raising awareness. Today's episode is with Ethan Levine, a pathbreaking trans man, an author, a social justice advocate, an award-winning speaker on interpersonal violence and LGBTQ plus communities. He is also a survivor himself. He was raped prior to his transition and abused in a relationship there afterwards. So Ethan also understands too well the kinds of barriers that trans survivors face when seeking the, service, the services that all of us as survivors need. We need non-judgmental support, cultural competence, and understanding. Unfortunately, Ethan received just the opposite. He did not let that stop him from working to dismantle all of those barriers and more. Let's listen. Welcome to the Dear Katie podcast. My name is Katie Kessner.
1: And I'm Claire Kaplan. And before we get started, we know that the contents of this podcast can be emotionally difficult. We also encourage you to care for your safety and well-being. So please reach out to friends, family, and hotlines for support. Additional resources can be found on the Take Back the Night Foundation website, and we'll share that address with you at the conclusion of our podcast.
0: Thank you so much Claire. And we are so pleased to welcome Ethan Levine. Ethan, uh, we are delighted to have you share your work with our listeners and all the important uh, messages of hope and healing that you'll be able to give to them. So we are looking forward to the whole conversation. Could you start out, you know, introducing yourself the way you'd like to be known to our listeners?
2: Sure. Thanks, Katie and Claire. I'm super excited to be here. I love this podcast. I was really honored to to be invited. And yeah, um, I have been involved with uh, supporting other survivors of sexual violence one way or another for a little bit over 15 years. Um, Some of that has been through work as an advocate so providing direct support or education. Some of that has been as a researcher and a teacher. And uh, the other thing that I'll just say for now is that I do approach this work as a survivor. So, in my own work, I, in my own life, I've experienced uh, grooming within my extended family, sexual violence as an adolescent and, and as an adult, and also teen dating violence. Oh my goodness!
0: Thank you for sharing all of that, Ethan. It's so mm-hmm. powerful and so important for our listeners to know how you know we step right alongside you in so many ways. All of us in our you know our journey, our life journey to understand what happened to us and how we can use it as a tool to guide us into our future um, ability to make some meaning come from it and some Mm -hmm. healing. So let's start with how you came into the work you're doing now.
2: Sure, so advocacy of some sort was kind of always what I wanted to do as far back as I can remember um, to the point that when I was in high school, I tried to become a volunteer rape crisis counselor and uh, learned that you couldn't do that when you were like 14. Um, I like I, I didn't know that you know I didn't know anything about how the were. A lot of places at that point capped you or, or started at 21. So yeah, I know, right? Um, this, was, this was a long time ago. <laughs> when I was searching for colleges, the deciding factor for me was what cities had rape crisis centers that took 18 year old volunteers.
0: And, yeah. and what year can I'm sorry to just give context. What year was this?
2: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I, um, I started college in 2003.
0: Gotcha. Thank you. You know, some of our listeners are also teenagers now
2: mm-hmm.
0: and, you know, sexual violence happens to teens. So, and, and children, and I'm thinking about, you know, we always talk about the power of the peer
2: the power mm-hmm. of
0: feeling heard by someone your own age and generation. And Claire and I right. represent, and you, you know, we represent three different generations um, and decades. And I'm just struck by the fact that we need to have kids who are as strong as you be mentors and and that's not been explored and it's been limited. And the fear factor I'm sure is litigation and liability and it's, Unfortunate, because your voice at fourteen would have been such a powerful mentor to the eleven-year-old boy who was being groomed and sexually abused. So, uh, you know that that's something to think upon. How we can use our, our our voices and advocate for that opportunity for young people.
2: Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, I I really I felt that a lot when I was a high school student as well, right? You know, and that I was looking to my friends for support and providing support for other friends of mine who had been sexually assaulted, but we were making it up as we went along, you know, we, we couldn't get training in active listening or support or self-care, um, but we could have, if there was some kind of system in place for younger people.
0: The location, I think geo positioning you is, you know, we have listeners around the globe mm-hmm. um, and throughout North America. So what, what was kind of the location and status? Were you in urban, rural You know, how would you describe your location?
2: Right now, I uh, I live in Philadelphia, um, but I I grew up um, in and around New York City. Um, I was a joint custody kid, so my uh, biological father lived in New York City, and my mother and stepfather about an hour north of there. Um, It was the New York City places that first wouldn't take me, (laughs) and um, Boston was the city where I found a rape crisis center that would take eighteen-year-olds.
1: Wow! So, so you found a, a home. Where you yes. could do some work. So, what happened? How did that get started? How did you get started doing that?
2: Yeah. So, I um, I had I kind of took a chance. I mean, you know, I accepted uh, or I guess chose a school in Boston, and then after that, applied to be a rape crisis counselor, a hotline volunteer in the city, and was accepted into that volunteer training program. I literally started my first college classes and my first rape crisis center volunteer training on the same day. I just I, now I look back and I think like I had no idea what I was getting into right like I just I didn't think but about
0: that, it but honestly Ethan I say that's the beauty of our youth because mm-hmm. you're talking to me a similar like right. crazy kid at 18 I'm like oh I can take on the entire planet on on sexual violence <laughs> time and be I. I don't care, just dive right in.
2: Absolutely right. You my, know, uh, my, yeah.
0: Our frontal lobes are not fully developed and we just go for it. <laughs>
2: That's such a good point. But I think my only thought was, right, my classes are during these hours and the training is during these hours. What's the problem? Yeah. It's <laughs> very practical analysis. Right. right. But I, I will share uh, that. So, you know, I was with that organization for about a year and a half. Um and again, it was really going well. A year in, I became a peer supervisor, which is like a quasi-staff, quasi-volunteer role. You make like twenty dollars a month, you know, um, so so you you're kind of on the payroll, but not really. And you help train other people. You still cover shifts. And a little ways into what would have been my second year, I uh, came to recognize and embrace my trans identity. And I you know, started using a different name in my personal life. I started coming out to friends, relatives, teachers and brought that to the organization. And uh, they were not sure whether someone who wasn't a woman could do direct service volunteer work for them.
0: Oh, my God. So that was 2000 what year?
2: Now?
0: Uh, 2005. Nice.
1: Yeah. I remember having that discussion in the agency I was working at in the nineties, you know, couldn't, that was, that was not, you know, not thinking of trans folks so much as just men and women, you know, and that was a, a hot discussion. And, um and it probably went on long after me. So I, I can kind of understand that, but when you're talking about a trans individual in a community where there's a very out community,
2: yes.
0: uh... But, and where I also go with this, Ethan, mm-hmm. think about this question for you: How has the welcoming "Take Back the Night"? Claire and I are, are you know, on the board and mm-hmm. director the the longest standing international cause to end sexual violence, mm-hmm. like the grassroots movement that has been global since the '60s, <laughs> and it started saying like. It's all about women, she pronouns, right. and men, he pronouns. Not even thinking about the they pronouns and all the other identities. Sure, we have, you know, thought about re, reconfiguring how we think about what gender means in the world of sexual violence. So much better mm-hmm. in the last, I would say, only a few years, right, Claire? Would you say, like, I would say only the last two or three. And, and Ethan, you, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree, certainly the last few years, um, there seems to have been a huge transformation um, in terms of kind of who is able to have room in that conversation. I, I mean, I also, it, it's, it's a complicated history to talk about, right? You know, centering violence against women is important. Right. You know, I mean, and th- that's an important part of the work that I do, right, as someone who focuses a lot on making sure advocacy and research in this area is affirming for all genders. I still center and, you know, respect prioritizing violence against women. But, you know, I mean, I think that uh, over the last few decades, and I I agree, Katie, like more so during the last few years, that we've gotten better at finding ways to pull together, centering, honoring women's experiences while also recognizing that this is an issue that affects everybody.
1: Yeah, it makes me think, um, especially with the more recent years when there's more visible, well, first of all, trans folks are more visible, period, but also uh, trans survivors are more more visible. And thinking, um, gosh, you know, a million years ago, I spoke to uh, a trans woman who had been um, had been sexually violated by the military police when she was in the military, that mm-hmm. she was a, a yeah. man in the military. Right? That's what they right. saw, and she told me the story when I had given a, a workshop, and I remember thinking, we have to find a way to to serve everybody, and here's someone who you know had horrible experience and of course ended up with the bridge too. I mean the, you know there was the whole thing. And wow. um and that was in the nineties.
0: And speaking to the can you also answer this too, Ethan? Like I thought me, I was I was blind, truly I was I had no no informed anything to no social media, no computers. When I became an activist it was Going in as if I could not see or hear or had—I was lucky if I had the the five senses of touch, you know. Literally going in, not knowing the depths of what may may or may not happen. It was total blind. Uh, blind. I hate to even say that because it was just the the the, the gut instinct that this has to be done. It's wrong. And it has to be solved and I want to hear maybe on that part of you because you're also um
2: well, so that that resonates with me a lot um I think like there are a lot of different moments in my trajectory that that applies to but just thinking mm-hmm. about like that you know month in my life when I first you know came out to my hotline supervisor as trans um where because you know they kind of both of these processes were unfolding at one time um interestingly uh, so And I also can't totally separate them out. Um, Oddly enough, uh, my training as a rape crisis counselor was part of what had ultimately helped me understand that I was a trans person. So going through the 40 hours of training or however many hours of training it was, again was amazing. And I was super excited. I was grateful to be there. But I did often feel like when we had conversations about, quote unquote, typical survivor reactions, Mm -hmm. that I didn't fit anywhere in them. Yeah, um, which which was fine. You know, it was an empowering organization. Everything was in the aggregate. You know, this is what we often hear. This is what callers might say to you. But of course, whatever someone goes through is their journey and that's valid and that's fine. And then one or two sessions after I finished my training and was officially taking shifts on the hotline, um, and this was about as close as we got to all gender inclusion in those days, we had someone from another organization come to talk about working with men. And the first 20 minutes was, so if a man experiences sexual violence, what would you expect him to go through? What might stand out to you in a hotline call? And we do this big list of reactions we might expect and particular challenges he might face. And I remember just sitting there looking at this, you know, giant post-it, get like line after line after line after reactions and feeling like I see myself here for the first time. Wow. Yeah. Uh, the the big trans moment for me also was kind of accidental. I was writing an introduction for a teacher and accidentally came out in this essay that I was writing <laughs> to tell a teacher about myself and then just turned it in. <laughs> but, yeah, yes. But you know, I will say that when I met with my hotline supervisor and said, so it turns out that this is who I am, um, I'm now using the name Ethan everywhere, but at hotline meetings, what happens now? And she told me that she wasn't sure. Ultimately, that led to a three month argument between staff and the board, trying to figure out who could work there, who couldn't, and then I was forced out at the end of that three months. Um, yeah, but if anything, honestly, that moment, when she said, I'm not sure if you'll get to stay, really confirmed for me that being trans was a part of who I was to stay, right? like that working with other survivors was the most important thing to me in the world. And I remember feeling like if I am willing to put this at risk to live as Ethan, then I have to live as Ethan. So this is still 2005 when I started with them, and I, I was there for about three and a half years. Um, so I, the, the work was incredible. I, I got to develop a lot as an advocate. I got to kind of really refine a sense of you know the difference between providing and training people to provide general services, you know, at a kind of mainstream organization, to really focusing on how homophobia, biphobia, transphobia inform survivors' experiences, um, which. We could also talk more about it at some point. Um, that that's also really you know, I am someone who's experienced sexual assault and sought care while living as different genders, right. So like I I got a much better sense of why that matters and what it means working for them. Um, but I ran into this problem over and over again. Um, Claire as someone who is, I think also kind of a combined you know advocate academic, right in a way, you, you, this might resonate with you. Uh, so we we knew the work that we were doing was important. But I often felt like what I had to say and what my colleagues had to say was sometimes dismissed by people in positions of power because we were just Mm -hmm. advocates. Yes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know? Yes. (laughs) And Katie may have had this Mm -hmm. happen too. Yeah. Um, and I used to go on these rants saying, you know, I just wish that we had like a doctor so-and-so who could come out and say the thing that we're saying, and then people would listen and we could get funding and we could do our jobs. And it took several years for me to realize, like, I can become Dr. So-and-so. <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. Uh, that led me to, right, that led me to grad school of uh, like a master's and then ultimately a PhD. And I have... Um, you know, I've moved and it's like, I'm not in Boston anymore. Um, So I'm not doing work there. Um, but, you know, like the job that I got right after getting my doctorate was an LGBT focused advocacy position at a mainstream sexual domestic violence organization. So I've been kind of back and forth and really trying to bridge those worlds together to make the work reach farther.
1: You, you talked a few minutes ago about the issues that how this has changed and and the issues you face as a survivor, but also Mm -hmm. the survivors who um, are LGBTQ, non-binary, et cetera, et cetera, um, what they face. Can you talk a little bit about that and
2: what is different? Sure. Sure. So, uh, and I, uh, in terms of the context you were talking about, Katie, I am most able to think about, you know, 2005 ish up through now, um, since that's when I've been most aware of this. Right. Um, So, I think that uh, the biggest difference is moving from a time in which you have to explain what transgender means to generally being able to count on people knowing that word, right? Um, And so sometimes you have to fight for legitimacy as a trans person, but you're not generally telling people, hey, there's more genders out there. Human beings are more expansive um, in your first visit. And related to that, I think, uh, so, you know, this is also really variable, right? You know, um, it's the, the treatment that you get seeking support is going to depend a lot on where you are, the training, the values of the people providing services to you, what other identities and backgrounds you carry into an experience, right? Um, but, you know, so from my own, uh, my own example, I, when I, so around I think 2005 was just a very busy year. Um so when I was making that shift I was starting to uh, live as Ethan. I had I wound up unexpectedly reconnecting with someone who um, had been violent towards me in high school. And it it just brought up a lot of I started having flashbacks again. It really impacted my work and school life. It just kind of threw everything into turmoil for me. And so I sought counseling at my college and was doing the standard intake until about halfway through when I told them I was trans and I wasn't seeking gender therapy, right? I, I was pretty good there. I was seeking sexual mm-hmm. assault counseling. And the intake counselor stopped and said, okay, we don't have anybody here who can talk to someone like you. And and that was it, you know, and said, I can send you to an LGBT center, but we, we can't do this. No. And uh, so just an outright denial of services. Um, I, I, it's harder for me to imagine that being as standard a protocol now, right? The Wonderful. idea, in, mm-hmm. right, where I think in 2005, the kind of best practice is, all right, you're LGBT, you go to the LGBT center, right? You're a person with disabilities, we're going to send you the, to, to the disability office. And I think that at least at a lot of organizations, there's more and more of an awareness that you need to be prepared to support all survivors. And that if you don't have that specialized training, you need to get it.
1: So, th- wow, that was an eye-opening experience. I'm quite sure. And then, um, mm-hmm. what other sorts of experiences informed um, your what you see as having changed?
2: Yeah. So, um, great question. I, you know, certainly my own experiences as a survivor seeking care. Um, I, there are a couple of things that really make me optimistic. Um, I guess, in a way, this moment is a great example. Kind of Who gets invited to speak where? You know, who gets invited to be in you know, a part of uh, what conversation? Um, for example, when I was a grad student a few years ago, I was invited to speak at the Take Back the Night that undergrads were organizing at my university and uh, was specifically invited to talk about LGBT survivors' experiences. And this was just about 10 years after, you know, being denied therapy and being kicked out of the organization and everything like, so I've gone from, you're not qualified to support other survivors to, we want you talking, <laughs> right. Um, and supporting people, you know, on crisis hotlines, doing advocacy work. Uh, again, I, I want to be very clear, you know, there, I, we're not done, right. There's, there's a tremendous amount of work remaining, but I don't hear, denial of service as often as I used to, right? I more often hear this place wasn't ready to support me you know, as, as a concern, right? Or, or this place, the staff were doing their best but they didn't know what to do when another person in the support group said something transphobic, right? Or mm-hmm. like kind of a, farther down the line in terms of where most of the problems that I've heard about are starting. Could I
0: actually ask one? I had two thoughts, Ethan. You just described what I did too. My institution that rejected me, blamed me, marginalized me. Then years later, they said, hey, come to Take Back the Night and share your story. Wow, wow, wow. And how much, uh, you know, ditto, both of us. And my feelings in going back are similar to yours. Like, actually... Kind of, you all aren't that much different, and still, like I feel like now I'm a token. I felt like tokenized again. Like, oh, we, redemption token. We invited our nemesis to come back, and oh, wow, they did. <laughs> there was they. I I knew I and I, but but part of me, maybe like you, Ethan, I wanted to see how I felt. personally, the I pronoun, I wanted to see how I handled that moment. Not. It wasn't about them. It was about me feeling the space, the place, the smell, the the whole five senses. And and then doing the analytical brain analysis. Have they really done any better? So does that resonate with
2: you? That definitely does. And I will say to to that story, Katie, I don't know how I would feel if the rape crisis center that forced me to leave or the university that denied me counseling asked me to come back. Mm. Um, And I am amazed that you did like that. That seems generous and brave of you.
0: (laughs) Well, here's, here's, here's the wicked twist and turn, Ethan who invited me was the sororities. And when I was raped, Um, They circulated a petition, they, meaning students at my college at the current point, saying Katie is a liar and HBO, you shouldn't make the movie about her. And it was signed by about a third or half of my school, which was highly Greek. Um, And the sororities and fraternities, of which my perpetrator was a member and his ex-girlfriend was also a sorority member, they're the ones who signed it most and literally we're talking like hand scribed back then Ethan old school old school it's like a real piece of paper and there's real handwriting and real signatures and i get invited to speak at take back the night by a sorority by my you know secondary perpetrator <laughs> right like the the member of the whole cult and i i was like oh i i think one of the other things i think about as a survivor is how many times we have to forgive. And we're always so sometimes we're always so optimistic. Oh, maybe it'll be different this time. But it's also the same cadence and rhythm and spoken voice in our heads for victimization. Maybe they won't hurt me this time. Maybe this time when they say they're sorry, they mean it, right? <laughs> and so it's symbolically I go with that narrative, Ethan. Like I was like, oh my quote secondary perpetrators said, "Oh, I'm sorry, but we really want you to come and do this." And so I trusted in their support. And I would say out of the whole pack of all those humans, maybe one or two back then really understood, but they were survivors themselves. Otherwise, I was window dressing, and it was uh, and I sometimes wanted to say to our our listeners, we have to decide what serves us. You know, some sometimes you have a nagging question and you have to go there, but sometimes you have to say, like, "Nope, I've actually grown so much; I don't yeah. need your apology." No, no I love that. <laughs> I don't know. I toss that to you, Ethan.
1: But so you were you were asked to speak at the institution you had currently were at, right? The, the, not the one where you had been denied service just a little different yes it is, it
2: is yeah and that yeah. was that was a big thing i mean it was still terrifying you know um and it mm-hmm. was um and, and this was a school where i had faced uh some discrimination in healthcare as well so i um i trusted a whole other topic yes yeah um but i i trusted the organizers and and yeah and katie i don't know if this was part of your experience doing that too i really i try to stay focused on you know but I'm sure even at institutions that are really oppressive and stifling and harmful, uh, that there are, you know, there are students who need support, right? Like you were mentioning, Katie, you know that there were other survivors you know, right, at the time who who were on board? And so I right. but when I feel able to do it, you know, I try to think like to, to to approach this as trying to kind of be that visible person that I wish I had had access to. My final, um,
0: you know, just to make your whole mission accessible to our various, you know, path and survivorship, you you started out kind of saying your various experiences around being a survivor. And if you don't mind, um, and Claire may have one more, I just think, to, you know, we have survivors of childhood sexual abuse with parents, with siblings, with you know, dating violence. We have every walk of life. And, you know, I think you gave us a, you know, snippet of how much and you don't have to go into each one, but maybe, you know, just reiterate for our listeners, you know, where your journey to empowerment, you know, stemmed from and how, what was the first member you have maybe how young and, you know, when did it end because sometimes i I think our survivors say it's never going to end. I'm always going to be in bad relationships. And how do you speak to that?
2: Yeah um, and you know this fits in with the uh, LGBT or the trans piece a lot because I think I, I mentioned before, right I've experienced violence and I've sought support while living as different genders. Um, so I was uh, raped at a party when I was seventeen. Um, and I, I definitely had some much younger experiences that I feel like set the stage for me not expecting support if I reached out. Um, but the first thing that, you know, that I would call a sexual assault was when I was 17 and I had, there's not a good word for this, the kind of very casual, very high school version of dating. I had a, one of those with the best friend of the person who raped me and she became abusive to me after that. Um, mm-hmm. And it only that only ended because I went to college in a different state. Right. Uh, And so those experiences happened while I was living as and still identifying as a girl. And then um, I was 19 when I started living as Ethan and uh, experienced um, another incident of sexual violence on a date. when I actually was particularly vulnerable because I had a head injury. I was a rugby player for a bit in college and mm-hmm. had some limited capacity and was very upfront about what I was capable of and not capable of. and. Uh, this person exploited that. Um, and then the last one, I really debated whether or not I would share this, but I feel very comfortable with the two of you and I love what you're doing. And this is something it's important for me to be visible around as well. Um, my last experience of sexual violence was when I was, I think, 24 uh, and was in the context of sex work. So uh, during my first period of grad school, I, I worked um, at a at a dungeon um, in New York City. So as a professor, as a BDSM professional, um, and I was sexually assaulted as a, uh, by a client, and w- what was really complicated there, right, so I've experienced this as a teenage girl, I've experienced this as a college trans guy, and in, at work, I was living my entire life as a trans guy, but my workplace persona was a cisgender woman, like to make more money. Yeah. Yes, okay. so I had this incredibly complicated experience of trying to navigate you know, rape on the job, and how do I talk to co-workers about this, and how do I navigate the fact that now I'm concerned that if I reach out for counseling, right, I might face transphobic barriers to support, and I might face sex worker stigma, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but all of those experiences have ultimately connected me to other survivors and, you know, led to, like, more community and kind of more things to push forwards on.
1: Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Because I, you know, plenty of people write about the sex industry and sex mm-hmm. trade, but they do not come from the perspective of someone who's participating right. in it. I know there are some mm-hmm. who do, and there are some who I uh, you know a woman who got her PhD in that, you know,
2: writing. Right, right. Work. And and in yes, exactly. But, yeah. And in that case too, you know, it was very important for me to be able to tell a story about how the fact that this work was criminalized and stigmatized was really what drove my not having many options. You know, um, that people get sexually assaulted at work in a range of career fields, but, you know, I couldn't go to HR.
0: What would you say to our listeners um, as a closing comment? What would you ask or challenge them or heal them? How would you scoop them up in the virtual arms of your brain and heart and mind?
2: I would challenge our listeners to allow their own needs and their welfare to matter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to think about, you know, Mm -hmm. what feels meaningful to you and safe for you as as a recurring question. You know, Um, so for people who are survivors, um, anyone listening to this is at least invested in building a world that's supportive for us. Right. Building a world where sexual violence maybe doesn't happen. Right. Or where we can Mm -hmm. feel sure that if we come forward with our stories that we will be believed and supported, right? Um, So however you're connected to that work, really just centering what's safe and meaningful for you as as you go along.
0: Thanks so much, Ethan, very helpful. Claire, anything else from you?
1: No, no, thank you. I just, uh, another thank you to you, Ethan. This has been wonderful. And thank you for sharing so much of yourself, but also your wisdom um, with our
2: listeners today. Yeah. Thank you both so much. This was amazing.
0: Of course, Siphan. And to all of our listeners, this has been another episode of the Dear Katie podcast. I and Claire and all of us very much hope that you will find some hope, healing and strength from the voices on this podcast, always each and every episode. We encourage you to tune in again next week when you will hear another voice of courage, voice of strength, and someone to walk alongside you in our virtual world. Um, Claire, a closing from you?
1: Yes, and um, we are so grateful to all of you who um, joined us to listen today and and to learn, um, no matter what your reason is for being here. Uh, This podcast is for everyone from all walks of life. Um, For support, please visit our resources listed on the the takebackthenight.org website where you can um, also tune into our upcoming events and gain access to our free legal hotline. Self-care is self-love.
0: Thank you so much, Claire. And thank you, Ethan. And together, we all will shatter the silence to end this violence. Take care and looking forward to our next episode. Bye-bye. We're grateful to all of you who have joined us for this episode of Dear Katie's Survivor Stories. If you need support but don't know where to find it, please visit takebackthenight.org for a list of resources. You can reach out to our legal support hotline, uh, connect with other survivors through our social media, and you can also help other survivors simply by subscribing to our podcast and sharing it far and wide. Please consider posting it on your own social media with some remark about what it's done to help you, and make sure to follow us on ours. Dear Katie is completely produced by all of us, an amazing group of volunteers. We care so much about this cause. The paycheck isn't what we're doing for. Thank you to all of our volunteers. Thank you to our listeners, and thank you for our survivors, wherever you are, for being present and joining us in this process of growth, strength, and healing always remember self-care is essential to healing and to thriving.